I'll be doing the Bible reading this morning from Galatians 4:21 to 5:12. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is, the, is from Mount Sinai and bears children who, who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above her is free and she is our mother for it is written, be glad barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again with the yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves become circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obliged to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, who, um, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for the agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's James. Um, I'm one of the pastors here at Toongabie Baptist Church, and I've got the joy just on this rainy wet day. I've got the joy of opening up God's Word for us as we continue our series in the book of Galatians. Um, can I encourage you to have your Bibles open there in front of you? If you don't have one, we've got them up the back and we'd love you to have one. It could be our gift to you. We, we love to have the Word of God in our hands as we go along. Now, if, if you're here for the first time, welcome. If you're a newcomer, it's great to have you here and I'd love to meet you after the service. So today we're coming to God's Word. We're really going to be focusing on chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, but we will be having a little bit of a quick look at the section before as well. And it's just good to know that as we come to God's Word, we, we, want, to, we want to get it in its context, we want to read it well. Um, you know that Hagar and Sarah story, it's a bit complex, and, and it leaves us sometimes with questions. But I think it's really key as we 
as it was read, that, that story of Hagar and Sarah, there, it's using a historical event there as an allegory. It's a figuratively speaking. And so Paul's making a, um, he's making a point from history so that we understand um, yeah, who Christ is and how terrible it is to go back under the old way, under the law. Let's pray as we come to God's word today. Heavenly Father, we want to just thank you so much for your word that you've given us. And we ask that your spirit will just will work in our hearts and just deepen and embed this gospel deep within us so that we don't add to Jesus. Lord, help us to run in it. Help us to know the freedom that we have so that we don't turn, so that we don't have confidence in the flesh, but rather we have confidence in Jesus. And so, Father, do a good work in our hearts today so that we may delight more in Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of those questions that you get asked for me, I get asked of, is often, you know, it's a difficult question. Well, it's not a difficult question to answer, but when you get asked that question, James, what do you do? You know, as you stand on the side on a soccer or somewhere else, they ask you, James, what do you do as a job? Now, sometimes you can realise that once you say you're a pastor, you can shut the conversation down. It's sort of like, I don't know what to do with that. But of recent times and late, I'm, no, I'm noticing it doesn't necessarily get shut down. But when they hear the answer, well, I'm a pastor at a church, you, you see them go, oh, that's good. And their, their eyes are sort of rolling and they're sort of thinking in their mind, Oh, good on you, you know, and, and they're sort of surprised. Like you're a young man, you're married to a beautiful woman, and you've got three beautiful boys, and they're sort of thinking to themselves, why are you doing that? Because they're thinking to themselves that you're a young bloke, and to be a pastor and to be a Christian, it's surely that's oppressive. Surely you're in bondage. Surely you're enslaved. See, in their mind, as they hear the word Christian and they hear the word pastor, they're going, oh man, you, you, the fun's been taken out of your life. There's that idea of religion thinking that you're oppressed and you're enslaved, that, that life now is not happy, but it's sort of you're enslaved, you're in bondage. And, and that's what people think, isn't it? When they think of the word Christianity, they, they think possibly bondage. They think enslavement. They think oppression. And, and you might be here today, right? And you're tracking and you're thinking, I want to find out more about Jesus. I'm wondering whether I should trust in him and, and all those kind of things. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, but if I follow Jesus, is that going to bring about bondage to me? Is that going to bring about an enslavement? Is, is it going to take the joy out of my life? Surely if I become a Christian, my joy will be gone. Maybe that's you today. And I know as, as I reflect on that question, I, I think as people have it going through their mind, they're not thinking of biblical Christianity. They're thinking of worldly religion. So even the last week, you may have read to see that less people in Australia are ticking the box Christianity. Now, some of you might be freaked out by that. I'm not. I actually think it's just leveling the plane. It's actually showing us really who is. See, for the last 50 years, we've just had nominal Christians who come along and think that attending church and saying prayers and doing these things makes you a Christian. But now there's pressure in the Australian environment. There's this idea that Christianity is oppressive and it's taking away freedom and, and all these things. And so our idea of Christianity is that, it's, that it, you're in bondage. And right deep down, though, I think it's because they're picturing religion like J-dubs or Mormonism or, or Islam or where, where 
It's what you do earns the favor of God. There's all these rules you must do to be favored and earn the merit of God. But biblical Christianity is everything but that. See, the, the everyday Aussie dream is work hard, save hard, invest hard so that you can have what? Freedom. See, they're saying you haven't got freedom and yet they're enslaved to their jobs. They're, they're enslaved to their bank accounts. They're enslaved to their relationships because it's in those relationships that they must find their freedom and they let them down so often. But if you want to ask these people, you know, well, what, what, what do you think is going to happen when you die? And they think, I'm oppressed. The Christianity, is, it's, it's bondage. They'll think, they'll go to me, they'll say, well, when I stand before God, I've, I've been a pretty good person, so I'll be okay. I've done enough that the, the scales have outweighed each other. And yet at the same time, they've just flipped it saying, I, I, I've done enough. I've done things that are good. But see, Christianity, biblical Christianity, tells us that we're actually the ones who are free. We're the ones who are no longer in bondage. We're the ones who are no longer enslaved. And what we have in Christ is deep down what the world is actually deeply looking for. See, Christianity, biblical Christianity, is freedom. And so today, we're going we're to look at this question of what does it look like for a Christian? What does it look like for those who are united to Jesus through faith? What does it look like? We've got three things. The first is we've been set free to be free. Did you notice that in verse 1? Now, this is a pivotal verse in the book of Galatians. Like Paul's sort of been working towards this. Have you sort of noticed that every week we're saying it's Jesus plus nothing? And you're thinking, like James, I've heard this last week. I heard it the week before. Now, Paul needs to tell us that because guess what we do? We forget it. But finally, we get to chapter 5 and we get to this really pivotal verse where it says, no, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now, have a look at it again, though. Christ has set you free for what? Freedom. We often think, oh, Christ has freed us to what? Bondage. No, 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 no. You've been freed to be free. Your freedom has happened. It's past tense. It's done. It's completed. It's happened in the past. You already possess this freedom. And so in a way, why do we then still try to gain freedom? But we've been set free. How have we been set free? We've been set free by the incredible price that Christ paid at the cross. How have we, how have we been freed? Christ set us free for freedom. We've seen that we've been set free. We've been rescued from this evil age in chapter 1. We've been rescued from the, the evil world. We've been rescued from the law. We, we've been redeemed from being under the curse of the law. We've been clothed in Christ's righteousness. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. We've been set free. So we've been set free from religion. We've been set free from performance-driven life. We've been set free from failure and letting people down. And we've been set free from God's condemnation. 
There's now no condemnation. That means that right now, today, if you're in Christ Jesus, God is not hovering over you, waiting for you to make a mistake and crack down on you. No, no, it says right now God loves you and he sees Christ. So this week, if you stuff up, God's not there leaning over you, ready to crush you. No, he's there over you seeing Jesus. So therefore, there is no condemnation. That means that this week, as you go through cancer treatment, this week, no matter what you go through, as you fail, or your kids don't do so well at school, or your marriage is in a mess, or you have health concerns this week, it is not the punishment of God. Because there's no condemnation. We've been set free from that. We've been set free to be free. How amazing it is that we've been set free from ever having to earn favour from God. We've been set free from ever needing to be loved from the need of performance and acceptance. So what are some signs? Though? What are some signs that, you've, that you're, you're walking in this freedom? So we have it. Paul sort of alludes that we, we've got it, but sometimes we don't walk in it. But what are signs that you're living in that freedom? Here's a couple of them. When you are criticised, you're not devastated by the criticism because you're resting in Jesus. That moment that you've, you've gone for a job promotion, you're the better candidate, you go for it, but you're overlooked for someone else and they get that job promotion... It means you rest in Jesus and it's okay. Now, here's some signs of when you are under law, right? It's the opposite, isn't it? When, you, when you're, you're living under bondage and enslavement is that when you are criticised, it devastates you. And therefore, what happens is you try and make it right and you try and do things so you can win that person's favour back. And what will end up happening is you'll become so busy in life trying to make up for all the things that you've done and devastated people because we are failures and, every, and it just keeps building up on our shoulders and before long you're just crushed because of the devastation of criticism. But then also, if you're under law, if you're, if you're under confidence in the flesh, when you don't get that job promotion, what happens is you become angry, resentful and you gossip and what happens at work is you start to compare yourself to the person who got the job promotion and you go, you start talking to people around you and go, oh, they're stuffed up. I would have done that better. And you start to think about yourself and you start to resent them and you become angry. See, fear drives that. The fear of letting people down, the fear of not living up to your family. But see, freedom in Christ sets you free from those things because you don't have to measure up. And I want to ask the question is, how many of you might be living in fear rather than freedom? The fear of never measuring up. And so you work harder. The fear of failing and letting your kids down. The, the fear of making sure you have your whole life together so it looks like you're a godly Christian. <laughs> but we've been set free to be free. We've been set free to be free, but we, we don't always live out our freedom. And look at verse 1 again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free and he commands us stand firm. It's military language. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Slavery. So it's, it's, it's the language of a military, of a line of military. They're lined up and they're standing their ground. It's, but what do they also do? Military, what are they? They're on 
alert. They're awake. They're realizing there's, there's things coming. But not only are they alert, what does military do? They stick together. They're in it together. And so he's saying here, oh, I, I, it clicked in my mind last night as I was trying to sleep before today. It clicked in my mind. I have so often read that individually. And it's like, James, you stand firm. But he's writing to a whole bunch of Christians corporately. Stand firm together. Because by nature, we love to perform. By nature, we are bent towards falling back to law. Therefore, we have a tendency to forget our freedom. And so what does it look like for those who are united in Christ through faith? Well, it looks like you're set free to be free, but we need to stand firm in that freedom. We need to stand firm by not adding to Jesus. So how do you stand firm? How do you live in this freedom? Do not add to Jesus. Now, I think we're starting to get the idea that's what Galatians is about. Jesus plus nothing. It's saying don't add to it. Now, in life, there's good additions. You know, it's good to put money, the addition of money into your bank account is a good thing, right? Now, the addition of a, a master bedroom with an ensuite and a second lounge room extension onto your house, that's a, a good thing. But there's also things that we add that aren't good. Now, I've got a, I've got a ski boat and it's an old 350 Chev, if you know what that is. And so you, you can run it on E10 fuel, right? You know, you've got E10, it's the really cheap stuff. And I put it in everything because I'm just cheapo. But because it's an old boat, it, it, it runs better on high-octane 98. So you can imagine how much it costs to fill it up, right? It was just expensive. 100 litres and one hit, like, boom, five hours of fun, $200 later. But, but you'd add this 98-octane fuel to the E10, and the boat would run better. It had more power. It sounded better. It was, an, it was, an, it was added, and it completed it, right? It's like squeezing lemon juice. You squeeze your lemon juice from your freshly plucked lemons from the tree. You squeeze it and you add it to your lemon meringue, right? You, you add it and it completes the lemon meringue, doesn't it? It finishes it. It makes it lemon meringue. It's beautiful. And so the lemon juice, ah, beautiful. And so often I think as Christians we take Jesus and the good news that we've been rescued and redeemed and we think that we're, my church attendance is just making that more glorious. That my prayer life and attending all those things is just making it a little bit better. That, that, that me attending church every Sunday, surely it's, it's adding to what Jesus has already done just to make it even more complete and even more finished. And we think this in our mind, don't we? we? We slip into this idea that all these things I do by serving in church on a Sunday and giving lots of money, they're obviously adding to the, the beauty of the gospel. But think about this. It doesn't. It's just like squeezing fresh lemon juice. And you've got a cup of milk in front of you and you tip the lemon juice in the milk cup that you're about to drink. It curdles it. It destroys it. And that's what Paul's getting at here. We get it around the wrong way. It becomes ineffective and pointless. We think that we're adding for good reason. Now, lots of those things are good disciplines for the Christian life, but we think we're adding it to make it more valuable. When in fact, it's become worthless. And Paul, he urges us, stand firm, resist this inclination to add to Jesus. Stand firm in me. Look at verse 2. That's what he's saying. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let your 
selves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Do you see what he's saying? Now, some of you here may be a new Christian. You haven't grown up in the church. Some of you may be here and you're not a Christian and you've just gone like, you've just talked about circumcision. Isn't that cultic? Like you're thinking, oh no, I've stepped in here and they're talking about circumcision. Now, and you think, man, are they going to, what? Now, can I just, if that's you, just hold it for a moment and I'll show you why Paul mentions it, right? Why he uses the language of circumcision. So it's not because it's cultish or it's weird. It's just he's expressing a point. He's making a point. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, go and talk to Pastor RJ after the church service. <laughs> and he can talk to you. But see, circumcision is done for a couple of reasons, right? There's a, couple, there's a few. There's quite a few. One's for hygiene and health. The other one is cultural and ethics and your race. Right, we, we, it's done because it's just a culture of where you live and the people group and that kind of stuff. But what Paul's talking about is, he's not talking about for health reasons, he's not talking about it for, for, for just culture, he's talking about it as an expression of religion. See, in the, in the ancient world, it become, in a way, that for Jews to be circumcised meant that you earned the favour of God. See, it's an expression of religion. It's saying you get this done and you've merited God's favour. And that's what he's talking about here. The moment you use something like circumcision and say Jesus plus gets circumcised, you've just added to Jesus. Right? We do it in many other ways, don't we? It's what you wear. Jesus plus, you make sure you have to look really good. But look at verse 3. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the law. What, his logic here is this. Okay, well, if you want to have Jesus plus get circumcised, you've just now removed yourself from Jesus and you've brought yourself under the law. Therefore, you're obligated to do what? Keep every single dot, every single word of the Old Testament law. You're to keep the Ten Commandments. Now, can any of us in this room say that we've ever kept the Ten Commandments? No. See, he's saying, well, if you want to do that, if you want to have a Jesus plus, now you're fully obligated to uphold the law and you cannot do it. So don't add to it. Verse 4, he goes on, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from, from grace. The moment you go back to law, you're no longer under grace. Now, what Paul's not arguing here is that you can lose your salvation. But he's making a point very clear that as believers, we have freedom in Christ. Don't add to Jesus. See, the moment you slip to religion and add to Jesus, you have just said, I am enough and Jesus isn't. Christ is enough. We sing it, don't we? We've decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And we sort of sing no turning back with confidence, don't we? We love singing this song as a church and we sort of confidently go, no turning back, we won't turn back. Now Paul's really saying, yeah, well, we, we, we've got to be reminded we have the tendency to do it. Lord, prone to wander, Lord, Lord, I feel it. So it's a great song for us to sing together to remind each other, don't turn back. Don't turn back. Don't add to Jesus. Because see, verse 5 tells us it's the spirit that fixes our eyes on Jesus. It, it fixes our eyes. Not only do you, have you been declared righteous... But by faith, we are waiting to be made righteous when Christ returns. See, we're not trying to do these things to be declared righteous. We already are. 
You can't add to what has already happened and what is yet to come. And so how do we stand firm? How do we stand firm? It's, it's not having confidence in the flesh. How do we not stand firm? How do we stand firm? Sorry, it's, we're not to have confidence in the flesh. That's what the Sarah and Hagar story is alluding to. That the promise doesn't come to you through your confidence in you and the flesh, right? So what's happened, it's, it's alluding back. The Hagar and Sarah stories, it's alluding back to the Old Testament, to those early chapters of Genesis chapter 12 through to Genesis chapter 22. God's made a promise to Abraham, that he's going to bless him, and through him all nations will be blessed. There's a promise that's been made of an heir, a seed, which will be Jesus. There's a promise. Galatians argues that you and me, in Christ, we are heirs of that promise now through Jesus. And so there's this promise has been made to Abraham and Sarah that there's going to what? They're going to have a child. Now, Sarah and Abraham have got no kids, right? Biologically, they know it. Does that, like, Sarah's old. So biologically, no matter how many times they try, she's not going to fall pregnant. And so, but God's promised an heir through Abraham and Sarah. And so what does Abraham and Sarah do? Because it's a divine promise. They decide, oh, we can't wait any longer. And so they take it into their own hands. Rather than trusting in God, they take it into their own flesh, right? They trust the flesh. They put confidence in themselves. Who's going to bring about the promise? We will. And so they come up with a scheme where Abraham is going to sleep with Hagar. Haggai, right? They come up with that. And so it brought about, they slept together, she fell pregnant, and they had a son called Ishmael. How did that child come about? Through human achievement. It was through human achievement. And God said, no, the heir is going to come through divine initiative and divine achievement. See, Isaac was born because of divine intervention. So there's no confidence in the flesh. In no way could we bring about that promise. And see, that, that quote in verse 27 from Isaiah 54, this quote of, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. It, it's a quote from Isaiah. Now, in Isaiah chapter 54, the people of God, they're under judgment, they're in exile. There's no hope for them. At this point in the book of Isaiah, Israel cannot put confidence in themselves to bring themselves out of the land. No way can they do it. They don't have the prestige, they don't have the numbers. No way can they bring about this promise of being returned to the land. And so God here in Isaiah is saying, you're barren and you're weak. See, there's no confidence in the flesh. And how do we come to Christ? We come barren and weak. We come barren and weak. It's by divine achievement and divine initiative. See, it's only when we are weak and barren and when you have absolutely no hope or ability for you to bring life, that is when God works. See, verse 27, Paul is eroding any inclination in our thoughts. He's eroding any thought of ours to think that you can put confidence in the flesh. You can't. Now, if you want to, you'll go back under the old covenant. 
You've been set free because you are barren and weak. See, it's a story of divine initiative and intervention. And see, to put confidence in the flesh, it plays out in two ways. We've, we've been talking about how do you know when you put confidence in the flesh? It plays out two ways. You become arrogant and prideful or you become a failure and a disappointment. And we, and we play around in that cycle all the time, don't we? See, when you put confidence in the flesh, you become proud about what you have achieved. And so it puffs you up, right? You sit here in church and you look at other people and you just go, I'm so thankful I've got stronger faith than that person over there. So I must be more godly. As you look at someone else in church, you think, oh, they don't attend as much as me. And so it puffs you up. You haven't committed adultery or you haven't done this. or you haven't, And so what happens is you get prideful and arrogant because you've compared yourself to someone else. And, and do you see you're putting confidence in the flesh? But actually, you can do it the other way as well when you become a failure and a disappointment. We all are. We all disappoint people. We all fail. Actually, when you feel like a failure, when you feel like you're a disappointment, it's in that moment you're still tied up in the confidence of the flesh, right? Because you've realized you've let other people down. You've been a disappointment to your family or to a, a partner or you've been, you've been a failure at work. And so the reason you feel that is because your confidence is in you. Whereas guess what the gospel does? It sets you free of that. So that whether you're arrogant or prideful or whether you're a failure and a disappointment, it just levels, it's, it's not found in the confidence of the flesh, it's found in Jesus. See, some of you might think, or you might believe that if I just raise my kids to look morally good... Make the right, and make sure they make the right choices and do the right things, then I've done my job as a parent. No, your job as a parent, it's, it's for us to stand in the gospel and to point our kids to the gospel and to show them how we live in that freedom every day and how we respond to the highs and the lows of life. It is a very powerful witness to your children when you're passed over for a job promotion and they see that it doesn't devastate you when they see that you're not resentful and angry that is a powerful witness to you standing in the gospel it's a powerful witness to your children when they see you fail and stuff up lose your temper yell at them and you sit down with your kids and you say I am sorry I have failed you in this moment that's a powerful witness to the gospel of living in the freedom of the gospel and guess where else that's a very powerful witness in the world to see that your job promotion that you did not get did not rattle you and wreck your world that's a very powerful witness to the world because see what hinders us from running well is the belief of having confidence in the flesh and obeying the law that God will love you and favor you more than yesterday because of it because see we think that if we just pick our act up you see the, see, the thing is that the, the, the slight thing we tell ourselves is if we just pick up my act this week, I'm going to run better. But Paul doesn't say that. He says you'll run better when you rest in your freedom in Jesus. It's the belief that you are nothing except for Jesus. Stand firm by not adding to Jesus. Now, I'm not a baseball kind of guy, but there was a famous American baseballer called um, Babe Ruth. I don't know whether you've heard of him. He was quite famous. Um, he broke plenty of records. So he's like, in America, he's obviously very, very famous, right? 
played a lot of baseball, was very good at it. And so this man, he, he got hold of, he, he, as a young person, he got a baseball that was personally signed by Babe Ruth. Had his signature on it. Later in life, he started to realise that what he had was priceless, right? It was worth a stash of cash. It was priceless to have that. So he worked that out. So later on in life, as he looked at the ball one day, he looked at the signature of Babe Ruth and it just slightly faded. And so he thought, you know what I'll do? I'll get the black marker out and I'll trace over the signature of Babe Ruth. And by the time he finished the signature, he'd made something that was tremendously priceless to something that was absolutely worthless. So stand firm and don't add to Jesus. What does it look like for those who are united? Well, it's set free to be free. We're to stand firm by not adding to, the, to Jesus. And so how do, we, how do we not add to Jesus? Well, we need to run in the gospel. That's our third point. Running. In the, how do we stand firm? Stand firm by running in the gospel. So if you notice here, it's, you've been set free to live in the gospel. We often go, I've been saved, now I need to pick my act up, right? No, 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 what Paul's arguing all the time is you've been set free by the gospel to live in that beautiful gospel. And we need to work that truth down and down and down and down into our hearts every day. That's why every day we need to sing to ourselves, we need to tell ourselves the beauty and the wonder of Jesus because see, the gospel threatens religious people. Because religious people pride themselves on their morals and self-righteous achievements and always being good and always being in the right. And so they jump in, they interfere in on the race of Christians who are running the race in Jesus. And Paul, he pleads here, right? He's pleading with these churches, stand firm, run in this gospel because you were on the right course. You were headed in the right direction. You were running really, really well. He uses the idea of running a marathon. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not the 100 meter sprint. You were living out your freedom so well. But look what happened. These people, they cut in. They turned you. They've come across your path and boom. They've said, yes, Jesus plus circumcision. Look at verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Now, what he's saying there is, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from... Another helpful way to say that is, what's, what's kept you from believing the truth? This is what he's saying. It's, it's not that you're obeying the Ten Commandments. No, no, he's saying, what's cut in on you believing this gospel? What's cut in on you trusting in this gospel, he's saying? What's got in the road of you trusting and believing that Christ is enough? It is all Jesus. See, they've, they've come in and they've got persuasion, but their persuasion doesn't come from God. See, he's saying it's not from God. But look at those beautiful words in verse 10, though. He's confident, though, that they're not going to. He's confident that they're going to go back to Jesus, that they're going to rest in what they first believed. Brothers and sisters, verse 11, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted in that case, the offence of the cross has been abolished. See, he's saying he's going to get persecuted because he preaches the gospel. See, it's like me cooking pizza down the Thermomix. I put flour in, and it's about this big, and I add a couple of you know, very miniscule yeast. And what happens? It does this. And works-based religion in a church is like that. It just, it's like yeast of unleavened. It just goes, and it's not healthy. 
And that's why he's saying, stick together, stand in the truth of the gospel, because it's offensive. See, the gospel is offensive because it says that you've done nothing and Christ has done it all. And see, one of the ways that we can pick where the people have become religious, it's how they talk about leaders of the church. It's how they talk about people in the pews. How do you know? It's, well, they harass leaders because they've never done enough. The leaders have never done enough for them. They're always failing and they're always letting them down and not doing what they want. Because deep down they're going, I need them to do this for me. My job is not to be there. My job is to point you to Jesus. I can never be your saviour. But religious people want you to be. They want people in the pews to be their saviours. To live up to their expectations and their demands and to say, no, no, our confidence, oh yeah, it's Jesus, but no, no, your confidence, you, you can be more confident in the flesh by what you do. And they want to undermine the gospel freedom that we have. John Stott's got this helpful quote, and I think it's going to be on the screen. I don't know if you can read it. But the persecution of the true church of Christian believers who trace their spiritual descent from Abraham. You and me, we, because we have faith in Christ, we are descendants. Is not always by the world who are strangers and unrelated to us, but it's by our half-brothers and sisters. Religious people, the nominal church, it has always been so. The Lord Jesus was bitterly opposed, rejected, mocked and condemned for by his own nation, the fiercest opponent of the Apostle Paul, who dogged his footsteps and stirred up strife against him, were the official church, the Jews. And the greatest enemies of the evangelical faith today are not unbelievers, who when they hear the gospel often embrace it, but it's the church, the establishment, the hierarchy. Isaac is always mocked and persecuted by Ishmael. It's serious. Stand firm by running in that message. Don't stop running in the gospel. Don't turn to confidence in the flesh. How do you do it? We run in that grace of the gospel. And it's pretty serious because in verse 12, Paul's pretty blunt. Now, I, you, you know, I sometimes occasionally say stupid things from the front. Occasionally, my words get tied up and I say the wrong word. I'm meant to say something else. And sometimes, you know, you go, you can never say that from the front of church. Have you looked what Paul's just said to a gathering of people as for those agitators i wish they could go the whole way rather than just chopping off the foreskin i wish they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves now it's easy to sort of squirm and think oh did he just really say that but we'd have no problem with him saying it if we took the gospel seriously if we took it as seriously as Paul, that is by grace alone, through Christ alone, through faith alone, we too would be as serious as these words as Paul. To stick together. That's why we need to meet together often. To sing songs that remind us of Jesus. That as we lead and sing, it's not about us, but it's about what Christ has done. We need to stick and stand together to resist the temptation to go back to confidence in the flesh. Because we've been set free to be free. We've been set free to be free, so stand firm. Do not add to Jesus and keep running in Jesus. That's what Paul asks us to do. You're set free to be free. Stand firm, don't add. And stand firm in living in Christ alone. Because our, our pride is killed, isn't it? At the cross. 
We're no longer a failure because who God sees us as is Jesus. We've been set free to be free, so stand firm, don't add anything to it and live in it, run in it. Show your family, show the world that we run in the grace of Jesus, in the gospel that through his life, death and resurrection, we have been rescued and redeemed and set free from him. Because on that day when we stand in the throne room of God, when we come before the most holiest of gods who knows every single one of your thoughts, every single one of anything that you've ever thought and done, and not even your husband or your wife or even your kids know that you've thought that, as you stand there and God says, he says, well, well, why should you be with me for eternity? In that moment, we are not going to put up our hand and say, hey, I walked down the front and said a prayer. In that moment, we're not going to use language of I did this. In that moment, we're not going to say, I believed in Jesus. In that moment, we're going to say, because of the line of Judah, the lamb who was slain. See, in that moment, it's going to be Jesus. That's why. It's all Jesus who's done it. And I like what Alistair Begg talks. He talks about the thief on the cross. As he comes to the throne room of God, you know, as he's there next to Jesus and Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. As he's there in the throne room of God, this is a man who's never been baptized. He's never been to church. He doesn't know the doctrine of sanctification or justification. He doesn't have his end time views all worked out. No, he stands there because of the line of Judah, the lamb who was slain. So church, let's stand in that. Let's stand in that today and let's sing about that now as we behold him, the one who has done it all. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the lamb who was slain, who's worthy of all glory and honour. And so, Father, help us never to move on but to run in the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for us as a church that we will know the areas where we've been putting confidence in our own actions and our own flesh. And Father, we want to say sorry for that and bring us back to the foot of the cross because it's at the foot of the cross all our pride is killed. And it's at the foot of the cross that in our failures and disappointments that that is removed because you see Jesus in us. So Father, help us to run that, we pray this week. In Jesus' name, amen.